0: And I get to preach on anything. And if you remember, (laughs) about a couple of weeks ago, I preached on spirit-led marriage. And I got so many great advice on how to utilize one bathroom that morning, that this morning, I decided to speak on spirit-led tips for one-bathroom households. So if that's you, you can take out your notes. I am kidding, all right? I kid, I kid, I kid. <laughs> Today we will be in the book of Ezekiel. Specifically Ezekiel 37 verses 1 to 10, which is also known as the vision of the valley of dry bones. And the book is named after its author, Ezekiel, who was a prophet during the Babylonian exile in the 6th century bc and so before we continue here let's just open in prayer father i thank you for your words god i thank you that you still do speak to us today and i love what was talked about even in our pre-service prayer about people being healed from past wounds being physically healed, God, but that also this summer we get an opportunity to indeed hear what you've laid on the hearts of different people who will be sharing. So, to God, I pray that as your word goes forth, Lord, may we listen to learn, God. In your name I pray, amen. So I mentioned that because this morning... I'll be talking a lot about healing from our past wounds, actually, from grief, from disappointment, from sorrow, from pain. I'll be talking a lot about those things. So Ezekiel's ministry took place during a tumultuous period in Israel's history. The people of Judah were living in exile, having been conquered and deported by the Babylonian Empire. Their temple had been destroyed, their king dethroned, and the promises of God seemed distant and broken. They were, metaphorically, a valley of dry bones, a people without life, without hope, or a future. Ezekiel was one of the most visionary prophets of the Old Testament, and he was a priest He lived about 2,600 years ago, and he witnessed the terrible siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, which fell in 587 B.C. He spent years in exile along with other Jewish leaders in what is now modern-day Iraq. There, the hand of the Lord was upon him to proclaim hope in a time of hopelessness. Regarding the vision we're looking at today, in the ancient Near East, bones were often seen as a last physical remnant of a person, and their treatment was of great cultural importance. Ezekiel's vision of dry bones would have been seen as a defilement of the dead, a symbol of complete desolation and abandonment. And the prophecy to the bones and to see them restored would have been an extraordinary event underlining the magnitude of God's restorative power. The book of Ezekiel is filled with vivid and symbolic imagery, and chapter 37 is no exception. It fits into a larger section of Ezekiel chapters 33 to 48 that contains prophecies of hope, restoration, and future blessing for the people of Israel. The visions of the dry bones being brought back to life in Ezekiel 37, 1 to 10, specifically symbolizes the nationwide resurrection and restoration of Israel. At this time, the nation of Israel was divided and dispersed. The northern kingdom having been scattered by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom in captivity in Babylon. And the reunification of the bones can be seen as a metaphor For the future reunification of the nation. The passage we're looking at today is also seen as a foretelling of spiritual regeneration of God's people. The dry bones initially represented spiritual death, and the breath or spirit of God that gives them life represents spiritual rebirth. And this theme is echoed in the New Testament, particularly in passages like Romans 8 11 where the Spirit of God is depicted as a source of life. Ezekiel's most remembered vision is the one before us today. It is the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. You may even be familiar with the song, Them Bones, Them Bones, Them Dry Bones, you know? And there were actions and all kinds of things to that song. I grew up singing that song. And so clearly you're familiar with it. And it's from this passage that those songwriters got their inspiration. So let's start with my first point. Point one, the valley is real. This vision was a third major vision of Ezekiel, a vision of hope for people in the valley of despair. We'll read verse 1 to 3. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Friends, the valleys are real. In the 18-month war between King Zedekiah and King Nebuchadnezzar, scholars believe that one-third of Judah's population starved to death. One-third were killed in battle, and one-third were taken into captivity and carried off to Babylon. The Valley of Judah contained the decomposed bones of slain victims, denied the dignity of a decent burial, their flesh picked clean by the birds of the air, there were a great many bones, and they were very dry. You know, one of my future plans by God's will is to visit the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and the one in Jerusalem, and there are some others around the world. But I've heard that it's almost more than one can bear standing in that situation. Yet, the world must never forget that within many of our lifetimes 6 million Jews two thirds of Europe's Jewish population were massacred many without even bones to be remembered the valleys are real should i go on to talk about the school rooms in rwanda where 40,000 people were murdered in 6 hours one spring day back in 1994 or dare we bear in mind the mass graves now exposed in Iraq, the result of Saddam Hussein's ravaged rampages? The valleys are real. Or what about the ongoing invasion of Ukraine by Russia? When I checked the stats this week, according to Reuters, as, as of May 21st, 2023, as many as 354,000 Russian and Ukrainian soldiers have been killed or injured. And 8,895 civilians have been recorded as killed and 15,117 injured. And it's believed that the numbers are even greater than that. But what about right here in our country? There have been, as of Monday, June 19th, 311 mass shootings, which have resulted in 248 deaths. 744 injuries. The valleys are real. Here in our country, there are on average 132 suicides per day. The valleys are real. And for us today, gathered in this sanctuary, or if you're tuned in online, the valleys in our lives are real. The cancer is relentless. The marriage is dead. The job is pointless. The grief is deep. The days are difficult. The nights are long and we respond much like Ezekiel Oh Lord can these bones live because the things we're facing in our individual lives it's all too much for our minds to comprehend the weight of it is all too crushing the valleys are real and the valley it isn't just about death and grief it could be the trauma that you've walked through through parenting or a parent who wasn't present or maybe it is that you've lo- let down someone or some ones and you still feel that today or maybe you're barren or maybe you've lost some kids or maybe someone has said difficult things to you or maybe Just maybe it's a grandchild who isn't following the Lord. Maybe it is your child that isn't following the Lord. Maybe it's a family member who isn't following the Lord. Maybe it is depression. The valleys are real. Whatever you're walking through, I want you to think about that as we continue. I'm going to be spending a bunch of our time, most of our time, on this first point because I don't want to gloss over this. With the valleys we're facing, we must take time to acknowledge our despair while also trusting in God's sovereignty. I think about the story of Job. In Job 42.2, Job himself confesses, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115:3 echoes this statement, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. An understanding of these verses, the ones I just read, provides comfort and strength in times of suffering. Our suffering God is not unaware or indifferent to our suffering. He's actively working in and through it for our ultimate good and his glory. Therefore, we shouldn't live in fear of the things we're facing but in awareness and dependency on God, whose power is infinitely greater than any evil force. In my own life, these truths brought me comfort and hope while walking through suffering and facing the mystery of death. And just as Job sought answers in his suffering, we today can find assurance in the solutions provided through Jesus Christ. Despite the challenges and mysteries of life, we can trust in God's plan for redemption and eternal life through faith in Him. Moreover, these truths should shape the way we live. See, with the assurance of being made righteous in Christ, we are called to live out this righteousness in our daily lives. And with the hope of resurrection and eternal life, we can face death and suffering and anything that comes our way with steadfast hope. Now, you might be saying, well, Pastor Jesse, you don't know what I'm walking through and I'm not trying to one up anyone. But I want to tell you that in the throes of grief, pain, even anger, the news of my brother's murder rocked our family. My brother was at my parents' house, and he left home in November 2014, and he would never return home. He went to pick up his daughter at his ex-common law at that time, and my niece's stepfather and stepbrother killed my brother. At the same home where she went, where he went to pick her up. We would not find his body for another four days because they threw it in a creek. I was actually the one who found the body. And I wasn't prepared for the things I'd see. And I remember I told my parents, you don't want to come down here. And they did an autopsy right there on site. And we buried him later that day. And I questioned God's sovereignty. It seemed all unfair. A meaningless act of violence. However, the doctrine of God's sovereignty means that even in the midst of the most horrific circumstances, God is still in control. He's still in control. In Romans 8, 28, the Apostle Paul wrote, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. I don't know how that works, but he does. I can't give you that answer. Who have been called according to his purpose. This verse doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. It doesn't negate the terrible loss or the intense pain. Rather, it means that God is able to bring good even out of the darkest tragedies. And my family has seen the fruit of that in our immediate and extended family. I don't have time to get into it. This morning, but I'll tell you this amid the traumatic events, whatever you're walking through, amidst the suffering, whatever you're walking through in here today, it's natural to feel ungrounded, even lost at times. I surely felt that way. I remember days I'd come to the church I attended then, and my soul was just crushed. The song's about he's faithful, he is good, he will never fail, and I can go on and on, I just couldn't bring myself to sing them. In fact, it often felt like rubbing salt into the wound. And I'd sit across from my then pastor and let me preface by saying I don't have the right theology on this. I just don't. And if you've not walked this road, I, what I will say next might be offensive to you. But I'd sit across from my pastor and nothing he said, not that he's sovereign, not that you've got to have faith, not that you just got to worship, none of it brought any assurance because the pain and loss was overwhelming. I was just trying to survive. I really was. I was in so much grief. And if you want to know more about this time in my life and the grief, pain, suffering, please feel free to come chat with me. I want to listen to your story as well, but also to share with you more deeply how I walked through that season. I'm standing here today because of his faithfulness. And so here I was, a 26-year-old, having gone through some serious life-quaking events because there were also a bunch of other things happening in our family's life and in my life. And I was struggling. I really was. And I was in therapy, but I was holding on to Jesus. And nothing could have prepared me for the trauma and the recurrent violent dreams that continued for almost six years after my brother's death. You can ask my wife. We, we weren't dating then. But we got married. And I'd had violent dreams. Up until about two years ago. Now I was seeing a therapist, but more than that, I was holding on to Jesus. Because he was healing my wounds and the things I was walking through. He was right there beside me, walking with me in the midst of it. And he said, don't wake me up when I'm having those dreams, because I'm fighting for my life in the dreams. So she'd watch me have dreams upon dreams. I kept attending service. To be in His presence and to be with His people because I believe that one day One day, even though I didn't understand it, and to this day there are still aspects of it all that I don't understand, and that's okay. But even with all of those things mixed in, I believe that one day He would bestow a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. He'd restore that which the locust had eaten. And one day, one day, I'd be able to sing those songs indeed, again and indeed mean them, I'd be able to laugh again. I'd be able to have joy again. And the season and the period I was in when I was walking through that, it was immediate. The grief lasted. The the immense pain probably took about six months before I finally came to terms with it. But it took almost seven years walking that out later. But in those six months, I still went to church. In those seven years, I still attended church. And I was faithful to attend, even though there were challenges. And the Lord showed up as faithful in my life. to so stand firm, because as Peter said in John 6:68 6, 6 and verse 69, and this stood out to me during that season of my life, Peter said, "Lord, to whom shall we go?" You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So yes, the valleys are real. And I want you to know this because these are things I realize in my journey. Staying grounded in faith doesn't mean ignoring or suppressing the grief. Quite the opposite. It means approaching God honestly about the pain and the hard questions. Like Job did. Like David in the Psalms did. And like them, my family trusted God to ultimately provide solace and hope even in the midst of suffering. And for our family, the Holy Spirit did just that as our comforter and He can do it for you. As a matter of fact, I'm almost sure that so many of you can speak to that in your life. In the face of death, in the face of our trials, in the face of our suffering, we can cling to the promise of Jesus in John eleven twenty five and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Also, remember that suffering may be the result of the fallen world in which we live in. We cannot always know the mind of God, but we can know God's character. And God, who loves us, sent his son to die on the cross to pay for our sins and for the sins of all humanity. By the way, let me just say, if anyone didn't deserve to die, to suffer, to be whipped, to be bruised, to be mocked, to be spit on, if we truly want to play that card, then let me just say that person would have been Jesus and him only. He was the only perfect sinless one. He was blameless and sinless. But even God's own perfect, spotless Son was not spared trials, pains, suffering, and death. So yes, the valleys are real, but may we be inspired to suffer well for Him if it comes to that. And that might sound jarring. And unfortunately, many Christians believe that we're not created primarily to serve God for His benefit. And many today believe that suffering is unfair and disproportionate but I want to encourage you, when suffering and trials do come, hold on to Jesus church, hold on to faith in him, Job responded to his suffering with great faith yes, he had a momentary pity party I think we all have those moments but Job's story and his response leaves us with a very important question how will I respond when my world caves in, how will you respond your world caves in. Something else I learned during my journey is that choosing faith in the midst of suffering will not eliminate the pain. Job was nearly crushed by the pain of suffering, yet in the midst of the pain and heartache, Job issued some of the greatest statements of faith ever heard. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Another thing I learned was that choosing faith in the midst of suffering will not stop the questions. In the book of Job, two chapters of great faith are followed immediately by thirty-five chapters of great questioning. And Job is not alone in his questions. Jeremiah could not preach without weeping, questioning how could God have allowed such despair? David also wrestled with questions for years, especially while hiding from Saul. In Psalm 13, David said, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The questions about suffering even reached the mouth of Jesus as he genuinely wrestled with the internal agony before crucifixion. Must I really do this, he asked. Is there no other way, he asked. Also choosing faith in the midst of suffering will not give you a logical answer for your suffering. The book of Job represents one of the most unusual pictures in in the Bible, and nothing about that story seems to make sense, and it certainly isn't satisfying, and that is part of the point. Suffering doesn't make sense, but it is a renewing and a refining process. The Bible tells us that. Suffering comes well armed with grief, hardship, misfortune, illness, crisis, tragedy, and more. It pays no attention to age, sex, nationality, or the size of one's bank account. But in the midst of such hardship, faith is still an option, even if it appears illogical. Because it will appear illogical to those around you the world around you. Choosing faith in the midst of suffering will remind you that God is in control. What are our options? In the midst of out-of-control suffering, on one hand, we could reject God, and many do. On the other hand, we could trust God. Faith in the midst of suffering seems to make even less sense in those situations. But placing your life in the hands of the only God who can take care of you in this world is ultimately the only logical action that a person can take. And yes, it will seem illogical, but without God and a community of faith, the journey of suffering will be lonely and so much more worse. And sometimes, in that journey, you might even be hurt by the church. I was in my journey. But as I said last week, or a couple weeks ago, Don't let your church hurt turn into a God wound. It's not him. It's not him. See, anyone can sing a song of praise on the good days, but it takes tremendous faith and spiritual maturity to sing those same songs of praise on bad days. Friends, God is still the same today, just as he was the same yesterday. And the same he will be tomorrow. And in the midst of the worst of it, Job hung on, hung on to one truth I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. If you're in the midst of suffering, you're also in the midst of an incredible opportunity choosing faith in the midst of suffering will bring you closer to God though you might not know it yet it did that for me it did that for Job Job didn't know that he was on his way to the most intimate encounter with God that he'd ever have in his lifetime the road of suffering was the only road that would lead him to a more intimate encounter with God unfortunately not everyone will come closer to God on the road of suffering. And sometimes that was a fluid thing. Sometimes I was like two steps closer. Sometimes maybe three steps. But he walked with me. So in the desolate valley of dry bones, Ezekiel faced the scene of utter hopelessness. When God asked him, Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel could only answer, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. His response demonstrates the depth of our human limitation and the vastness of God's knowledge. And just as Ezekiel saw despair in the valley of dry bones, we too can face situations that seem hopeless. Yet we can learn from Ezekiel's response. We don't need to have all the answers, but we can trust and the sovereignty of God who does. So the valleys are real, but may we look to the perfect one, whose word is life, whose way is sure and just, and whose redemption in Jesus Christ is our only hope. Let's move here to point two. And it's God's word has a power to transform. God's word has a power to transform. Friends, it's in a valley that this prophet is called to prophesy, verses 4 to 7. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you, and you will come to life, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. God instructed Ezekiel to prophesy to the dry bones to speak his words of life to them. Ezekiel's obedience led to a rattling and a coming together of the bones showing us that God's Word, spoken in faith, has transformative power. What you're walking through, spend time in the Word. Speak His Word over your life. Pray His Word over your situation. In our lives... It means delving into scripture, proclaiming it and standing on its promises, even in our dry valleys, Hebrews 4.12 affirms, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. We can take comfort in this no matter how scattered or chaotic our lives may feel. God can bring about order and harmony. The Lord's words to Ezekiel in verses 4 to 6 speaks to his sovereignty, his power over life and death and his desire to restore his people. Like the dry bones, we were dead in our transgressions, but through Jesus Christ we have been made alive. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 affirms this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The organization of the dry bones as depicted in Ezekiel 37 illustrates God's transformative power to create order from chaos. This transformation wasn't only physical, bone-to-bone, sinews, flesh, and skin, but a symbol of God's ability to restore a decimated and demoralized nation. It underscores the active role of God's Word in bringing about this change, but it's Ezekiel prophesying, it's his obedience, it's his proclamation of God's Word that initiates the transformation. The content of Ezekiel's prophecy isn't explicitly described in these paragraphs, but the biblical text in Ezekiel 37, 4-6 provides insight into his message. Ezekiel delivers a message of hope and assurance of God's power to resurrect and restore. For us today, this serves as a powerful reminder of the capacity of God's word to bring order into our lives, regardless of how fragmented, chaotic, or quote-unquote dry one life may seem. The Word of God can bring healing, wholeness, and renewal. <coughs> healing, wholeness, and renewal. So here's the point. Ezekiel did what he could and used what he had. He had enough faith. Enough hope, enough love, and enough courage, along with obedience, to proclaim God's word in the most unlikely place of all the earth. And to proclaim hope when all hope was gone. And the question I have for you is do we, do we, as believers today, may we rely on the power of God's word to bring order and restoration in our lives? and to exercise faith and obedience even when circumstances seem hopeless. Just like Ezekiel, we are called to be bearers of hope, knowing that our faith in God can bring life to the most desolate valleys we face. My last point is this. God's breath leads to life, restoration, renewal, and spiritual revival. Verses 8 to 10. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says Come, breathe from the four winds, and breathe into these slains, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet as a vast army. The Hebrew term Roach in the Old Testament and the Greek pneuma in the New Testament, both often translated as breath, wind, or spirit, denote the life-giving power of God. In John 3, 8, Jesus uses this imagery to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In our main text for today, it was not until God breathed life into the restored bodies that they came alive and stood up as a vast army. This breath from God is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The physical restoration was significant, but without the breath of God, without the Holy Spirit, there is no life in us. Friends, true spiritual revival requires more than external or moral improvement. It necessitates the indwelling and transformative power of the holy spirit as 2 corinthians 3:18 tells us and we all who have unveiled faces contemplate the lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the lord who is the spirit So just as the dry bones were revived by God's breath in Ezekiel's vision, we are spiritually renewed and enlivened by the Holy Spirit. This is a transformative process changing us from a state of spiritual death to vibrant spiritual life. I was in a grocery store the other day when I watched a two-year-old throw a temper tantrum. Something between the Cheerios and Frosted Flakes didn't sit well with him. And he screamed at the top of his voice. And when that didn't work, he decided to stop breathing. And so his face turned red, and his lips almost looked like it was turning blue. And I wondered what to do, but his mom, however, seemed unconcerned. See, she knew that he would eventually breathe, and he did. I've thrown my fair share of temper tantrums with God. Decided in anger or grief to stop breathing spiritually. See, when God didn't respond how I wanted or how I believed He should have, I concluded He was not there. But like that mother, He is still there all the time saying, You'll breathe again at the right time, in the right way. You'll breathe again. Church, am I talking to somebody in here today? God is closer than the air we breathe. Here's something else about breath. Most of us only use about 50 to 70% of our lung capacity. We are shallow breathers. If you've ever taken a diving class or you've ever done any breathing classes, they'll tell you, take a deep breath and go deeper, go deeper. We don't breathe from the depths of our being. And the same is true spiritually. We dabble around on the surface. But a spiritual mature person is a person who knows how to breathe. And if you don't know, he will teach you. Spiritual growth is much like deep breathing as it requires conscious effort, openness, and a willingness to let God's Spirit fill us and guide us. Just as our physical bodies need deep, full breaths for health and vitality, our spiritual lives need the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Using only a fraction of her spiritual lung capacity means living a shallow spiritual life. The challenge then for us is to breathe deeply, to fully engage with the Spirit of God, allowing Him to permeate every part of our lives, even the areas where we're struggling, even the areas where we've been hurt. You know, as a pastor, I've talked with many people over the years I was just on the phone this week with someone from back home in Belize. I've talked with many people over the years who have lost contact with God, and I understand that. They come to see me or talk to me, and I'm glad they do, because I truly understand. And I shared some of that with you in my earlier stories, because I found it overwhelming. But friends, here's what I realize. God is closer than we think. Maverick City puts it this way. I'll never be more loved than I am right now wasn't holding you up so there's nothing I can do to let you down it doesn't take a trophy to make you proud I'll never be more loved than I am right now going through a storm but I won't go down I hear your voice carried in the rhythm of the wind to call me out you would cross an ocean so I wouldn't drown you've never been closer than you are right now song continues to say Jaira You are enough. I will be content in every circumstance. When you think or feel you've lost God, I want to remind you, remember, breathe. You have to anyway. Take a breath. Take a deep breath. God is closer than the air we breathe. I'd like to call up the worship team at this time as I get ready to close here. Sometimes suffering is a mystery that we can't fully comprehend. And in such cases, an appreciation of God's omnipotence can lead us to humbly accept that we don't know everything. Our limited understanding is not a measure of truth or reality. Recognizing this can bring peace and surrender even in times of pain and confusion. You know, I heard this example months ago on social media, and it stood out to me. Uh, A basketball in my hand Probably worth just about 10 15 bucks. In LeBron James, maybe about 40 million (laughs) dollars. A golf ball in my hand is probably worth about the same 10 bucks, but in Tiger Woods, over a hundred million dollars. A slingshot in my hand is something I got into a lot of trouble with as a kid, (laughs) but in David's hands. It's a powerful tool. A stick in my hand or a staff in my hand is just that. But in Moses' hands, God used it. Five loaves and two fish in my hand, you'll have less at the end of it because I'll eat some. But in Jesus' hands, it was multiplied. Some nails in my hands... I probably couldn't build you something. I'd have called Steve Neff. But in Jesus' hands, paid for our redemption. My grief, your grief, my suffering, your suffering, your pain, your trauma, your crises, your heartaches, in your hand, they're just that. In my hand, they're just that. But in Jesus' hands, you put them in his hands? Put them in his hands. I tell you that because Debbie and I were about to take a trip back home soon. And the last few weeks have been very hard for me. I'm excited. But it's very hard. And I never thought about this before. But I'm going back to see people who have also deeply wounded me. I'm also going back to a place where I lost my brother. I'm also going back to a place where, yes, I've forgiven and forgiven people. And I'll see these people. That's not the reason we left. We left because of the Lord's obedience and calling. But sometimes when you go back or in the setting you're in, Whoever that person is or those somebodies are, they remind you of that grief and that pain and that suffering. And I am laying that down at the foot of Jesus right now. And I encourage you to put your pain, your suffering, your grief, your situation in His hands. He's capable of healing you. He's capable of healing you. So the valleys are indeed real. But God's Word and His Spirit has the power to transform us. And God's breath leads to life restoration, renewal, and spiritual revival. Would you stand with me? We don't have time to do an altar call, but I'd love to pray with you and for you. And if that's you this morning, things I talked about, if you find yourself... In any one of those things would you just raise your hand right where you are i'll raise mine right where you are don't be ashamed don't be worried about the person to your left or to your right if you need further ministry and prayer in this regard our prayer team will be here off to my right but father as peter said to whom else will we go And so, Lord, we raise our hands, God, with tears in our eyes and with broken things still being mended. Looking to you because you have the power to heal them, God. We sang it this morning, your name is the highest name. And so, Lord, we surrender to your healing work in our lives, God. Would you breathe in us a fresh breath of your Holy Spirit, God? Would you breathe your healing into the areas where we're broken, where we're grieving, where we, we feel lost, where we feel like we're battering out at sea, where there is crises, God? Would you breathe into those situations, Lord? And would we feel the comfort of the Holy Spirit that is indeed close to the broken heart? God, come in and breathe life. You want to partner with us. You partnered with Ezekiel in this. And so we open our hearts and our minds and our hands to you. Come partner with us in this, Lord. Heal our wounds. In your name I pray. Amen.